Well, it's good to be back with you this evening, and thankful for all of you that uh, returned. Appreciate your faithfulness tonight, and I uh, had an opportunity to meet some of the folks uh, this morning, and to hear uh, some have been in the church for decades, and to think through the faithfulness that that in, uh, is involved uh, is very encouraging um, to, to see someone being faithful to a congregation for that length of time in today's day and age where people are looking for something that gives them what they want. And uh, to see so many people that I know, even uh, folks younger and older than myself, that hop from church to church trying to find what they can get. And to see longevity is, uh, is, a, is a good encouragement. It's uh, nice to have my son Landon with me tonight. Uh, he's impressed with Brother Bob's beard. He thinks that's awesome. So I guess I've got something to uh, work towards there. Um, I, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but that's, uh, that, that was his comment. And uh, he was, Landon had an opportunity to uh, preach at Max this year and last year, and Pastor Jacob was one of his judges. So he was telling me he thought he was qualified to preach tonight if I was feeling sick. So fortunately I made it through. So maybe next time, bud. If you have your Bibles, you can join with me in turning to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and as you're turning there, just to ask you to think about the last major storm you participated in or you experienced. Uh, I've, I've been in a number of winter storms, blizzards and uh, freezing rain, freezing ice, driving out on that and spinning the car around a few times with semis around. It can be a little bit fearful. Uh, but perhaps not as fearful as earthquakes or tornadoes, and maybe maybe not the the Michigan variety of, of earthquakes. I don't know if you've seen that picture on Facebook or or on social media where it's got the, the little picnic chair that, you know falling over backwards, and it says Michigan uh, earthquakes. We will rebuild, right? So uh, we we don't generally get the full force of of the earthquakes here, but out in California they have some very scary and severe earthquakes that take down buildings and and cause a lot of uh, problems for, for folks. And when we think of, when I think of big storms, I think back to the, the earthquake in Japan back in 2011. It was uh, Category 9 in intensity. Uh, it shook for just a few minutes, but the, the tsunami that resulted lasted for a long time. And, and perhaps you've seen videos or, or pictures of, of what devastation all of that water did in the, in the nation of Japan, the country of Japan. And then for miles and miles, the, the tsunami continues and it brushes up even onto our uh, west coast. And just the, the, the powerful intensity and the, the fact that, that there was a, a shaking for a short time, but it had a long-term result. And then the devastation that came about as a result of that. As we consider being in that type of a storm and just try to imagine what emotions you would go through. Try to imagine what your temperament would be like in that situation. And maybe you've been in a tornado or an earthquake and, and you can relate more specifically to that. But our text tonight, we, we find the disciples in a similar set of circumstances. They're in a very violent storm. And so if you'll join with me in reading uh, Mark chapter 4, follow along as I read verses 35 to 41. It says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much 
that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they become, became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the instruction that it gives to us. We thank you for the wisdom that can be gained by following its truth. Father, Lord, perhaps there are times in our life where we can identify with the disciples in this situation where we get afraid, we are fearful. We're, we're not sure how we can overcome the circumstances that are in our life. And so I ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom from your word and from the example of Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. So just a brief summary of the events. I mean, it's a pretty simple story here. Jesus is in the boat uh, teaching most of the day. It tells us uh, evening came. It, it, it's not literally talking about evening as in being dark. It's basically Mark's way of saying it was getting late. And they're on the western bank of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a lot of big cities around there. And so many people were coming, no doubt, to get their sick healed and to listen to the teaching of Jesus and finally, he decides, let's go over to the other side. We're going to go over to the eastern bank. Not any big cities there. It's kind of a desert area. And so kind of get away from the, the crowd and have a chance to, to rest, to recover, and to get ready for the next day. And so, so Jesus tells them to go over to the other side. In verse 36, it tells us that there were other boats that were with them. So uh, based on the size of the ship that Jesus was in, probably all the disciples would fit in there. So it's kind of curious that Mark mentions that there were other boats there. And, and perhaps as Matthew mentions, there were other disciples there that kind of showed some interest in Jesus' ministry. And yet Jesus warned them that traveling with him and following after him would not be comfortable. That foxes had places to sleep, but the Son of Man didn't. And so he, he kind of warned them, well, perhaps some of those, those folks decided, we're going to follow you anyway. And then they get into this storm, and perhaps they start to second-guess their decision-making on that. Perhaps we should have stayed. Perhaps what he was warning of, uh, us of was not something we took uh, as seriously as we should have. And so these other boats were with him. They're going through the same storm as his disciples, and, and Jesus uh, no doubt was concerned for them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But as they're going through, Jesus is asleep here in the boat, and, and these disciples, many of whom were fishermen, no doubt were, were familiar with storms. They were used to being on the Sea of Galilee. And, and this, uh, the verse 7, 37 tells us that a great storm arose, and the ship was filling with water. If you know much about the geography around the Sea of Galilee, there are some really tall mountains there, as well as some, uh, some very low water. So uh, the lake itself is 682 feet below sea level, and 30 miles to the northeast, Mount Hermon rises to 9,200 feet above sea level. So you have some really cold air coming off the top of the mountain, some really warm air coming up from the sea. And it, it allowed for this effect where violent storms could just erupt at almost any time. And so the disciples no doubt had experienced great storms here, and yet 
they had apparently never seen anything like this storm. This storm overcomes them with fear. They, they are, they're going through a, a great storm here. In, in our text, it says a fierce gale of wind. That could also be translated as a whirlwind or a hurricane. Matthew chose to use a word that can be translated as earthquake. So it's not just a, a common storm that they were used to. It was an extraordinary storm. And the word fierce here, uh, in the Greek, I normally don't, don't like to get too much into the Greek, but this is a word that you've probably heard before. Uh, it's, it's mega. So if you work on a computer, you, you've probably heard of megahertz or megabytes. Uh, if you ever noticed the lottery on TV, you, you know that occasionally they'll talk about mega millions. And it's a word that, that we've kind of adopted to, to have this idea of large. And that's really the idea here. And it, it appears three times in our text. We see it here, first of all, in describing the size of the storm. It was a great storm, a tremendous storm, uh, larger than normal. And so the disciples who had seen many storms in their day are afraid that they're going to drown in this one. They, they finally have met their match. This is the end. Uh, and and they're, they're concerned that Jesus is still asleep on the cushion. It tells us that in verse 38, that, that Jesus is sleeping through the storm. And, and perhaps it was because Jesus was much more tired than normal, but this is the only time in, in the Gospels where we find Jesus asleep. And it's the time when the disciples are most nervous. They're, 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 they're panicked. It's an interesting contrast when you think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going through a, a great ordeal where he is praying fervently and he asks his disciples, will you not watch with me and pray? And consistently he finds them asleep. Well, here at the time when they are most concerned and alert, Jesus is asleep. Most likely, uh, again, exhausted from a long day of teaching. Possibly uh, he was under the stern deck, which would give him the most protection from the elements. And the, the cushion that it mentions most likely was uh, some kind of a sandbag that they would have used for ballast. So not the most comfortable pillow to be sleeping on. And yet he was able to sleep very soundly in the midst of this tremendous storm. Well, at the end of verse 38, the disciples wake him up and they ask, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They seem to be certain that they are going to die and they are also perplexed at how Jesus can sleep at this. And, and apparently the conclusion they come to is that Jesus just must not care about them. On the surface of it, that sounds a horribly inconsiderate question to ask your master. It seems a, a horrible question to ask Jesus and certainly uh, if they understood the character of God, they would never ever want to voice those words. And yet in the midst of their panic, they ask this question, don't you care that we are perishing? The rudeness of this wording reflects the way that frustrated and desperate people speak. If you think back to Mary and Martha, Martha comes to Jesus and she's been doing all this work and her sister's just sitting there listening and she gets very frustrated and she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? And sometimes we get frustrated with the circumstances in our life and we, we look around at the options and we think, well, either God it, it, it doesn't care about me or else he's not paying attention or, or, or perhaps he's not powerful enough to take care of this. Why else would he let me go through this? 
And we never stop to consider that perhaps God is using these events, these circumstances in our life to shape our character, to strengthen our faith, to give us resolve and to test our faith. The disciples are very frustrated. They're desperate. And they ask Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, several times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will rebuke his disciples, and yet this is not one of those times. You know, he doesn't stop them and say, no, wait a second, how can you say I don't care about you? I've provided for all of your needs, I continually take care of you, I've instructed you, I've given you, uh, you know, the, the keys to eternal life, basically. All that I have, I share with you. How can you possibly say that I don't care? He doesn't lecture them. He doesn't, he doesn't scold them. He doesn't rebuke them. And perhaps Mark is, is, has in mind here as he's writing this the, the frustration that the people of his day were going through in their life in Rome under the power of and the dominion of pagan powers. And they had suffered many storms of persecution under Nero's reign. And he certainly was no friend to Christians. And as they go through all of this suffering... Perhaps they wonder, God, have you forgotten about us? God, don't you care that the ruler who you've placed us under is treating us this way? Don't you care about your people? Don't you care about your mission? Don't you care about the church? So Mark expresses then, perhaps uh, as Peter conveys to him the story, he's expressing how frustrated and desperate the disciples were at this time. And it's easy for us at times in our life when we're, perhaps we're tired. We need, it, we need the rest that Jesus is getting at this time. And perhaps the circumstances seem overwhelming. And, and we've seen things that are similar to this, but never this magnitude. Perhaps we get desperate, we get frustrated, and we wonder, why isn't God doing something about this circumstance? Why isn't He taking it away? Or why isn't He uh, boosting me up? Why isn't He doing something to solve this problem for me. God, don't you care that I'm perishing? I'm about to drown. Well, rather than rebuking the disciples, Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind. In verse 39, he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. That word hush literally means to just keep silent, to, to mute if you have a, a remote for your TV, you got that mute button, you just hit it and perfect silence. This is, uh, this is the word that Gabriel used to describe Zechariah's mute condition until the day that his son was born. Remember, Zechariah couldn't talk. And Gabriel uses this word. So hush, literally just be quiet. Be silent. Make no sound. If you've ever been on the sea, even when it's not a storm, there's always sound. It's... There's always some, even just a silent movement of the water. And yet, Jesus commands the sea to make no sound and the wind to be silent. Scripture tells us that it then became perfectly calm. And that word perfectly is the second instance of our Greek word mega. So just as the storm was a great, extraordinary storm, this was a great and extraordinary calm. It was perfectly calm. That earthquake and tsunami in, in Japan, the shaking from the earthquake only lasted six minutes, and it took almost an hour for the first of many tsunami waves to hit Japan's coastline. And, and then we, we saw all the footage on the news of 
how much devastation that water was doing and how it just knocked down buildings and throw vehicles here and there. You think six minutes of shaking and yet for hours we see the repercussions. And when Jesus calms the storm, it's not that he just tells the wind to stop and then after a few hours the water eventually settles down. Both the wind and the sea stop at the same time. And it's incredible. And the disciples' reaction reflects how, just how incredible it is that this perfect calm comes upon both the wind and the sea at the same time. And Jesus asks them a question in verse 40. Why are you afraid? That might seem like a funny question. Because if you're in the middle of a storm like this, it is reasonable to expect that you're going to be afraid. This is the common response of humankind. And so everybody on the boat, except for Jesus is afraid. And he asks the question, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? It, it strikes me as funny that, you know, they're, they're afraid at the result of the storm or the result of the calming of the storm more than the actual storm. That, that's what I find funny. I also find it a little bit funny that they come to Jesus asking him to help and then when he helps, they get, they get shocked. It's like, what were you expecting him to do? Pick up a bucket and start, you know, dishing water? I mean, I don't know what they were anticipating he was going to do. But Jesus asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? You say, well, this is early in Mark's gospel. I mean, it's only the fourth chapter. What, what kind of evidence do they have to go on that would build their faith? I'm glad you asked. Because as we review the earlier part of Mark, we see that, uh, that the baptism and testimony of the Father, when, when Jesus is baptized, the Father speaks out with a loud voice, and the people around hear this. This is my beloved Son. Right? And, the, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and it's a miraculous event, something that, that kind of captured the imagination of many people that were there. Something that they reported for a while. And then, uh, as he calls Peter and James and John, there's this miraculous, huge catch of fish. Perhaps the biggest that they'd ever experienced in their life. And the, the nets are about to break and the boats are about to sink. And it's as awesome as that is, you know, they would be set for a while, at least financially. What do they do? They leave everything and they follow Jesus. So certainly they had already seen uh, some great events already. They saw that Jesus was able to teach with authority and everybody that listened to him said, this guy teaches like nobody else we've ever heard. There was the casting out of the demon in the synagogue. There was the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. There was the, the whole city that brought those that were oppressed by demons and those that had sicknesses and various diseases and he heals them. And then he, he heals a leper and that's just Mark chapter 1. Mark then goes on to describe his forgiving and healing of a paralytic and how he restores a withered hand. Jesus brought unity between the Pharisees and the Herodians. That was kind of impressive. Now granted it was because they both wanted to kill him, but, but he, he accomplished something that they had never done before. And Jesus goes around continuing to heal and to drive out demons everywhere he goes, and then he gives that authority to the disciples and sends them out to go and perform these miracles. Now how could they perform those miracles if they didn't have at least some kind of faith 
in the God who is giving them that ability. Then he tells the disciples that to them has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So as we look at his question, perhaps it makes a little more sense. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? How is it possible? You know, those that observed Jesus, they they talked about the authority of his teaching. They glorify God and proclaimed, we've never seen anything like this. And the demons confessed, he's the son of God. The disciples certainly had enough evidence to, to put the pieces together, and yet, just like us, they weren't quite getting it all. And they didn't get it for, for quite a while. But he asked the question, why are you afraid? This word afraid is also translated as fearful. It literally means cowardly or timid. To be cowardly or timid. Why are you so afraid? Not in the sense of why do you... You know, why are you afraid of the storm? But why are you cowering from this storm? I think we would recognize a storm like that has got the power to destroy us. We have no power to stop it. It it makes sense to us why they would be cowardly. And yet, Jesus asks them, why are you cowardly? Now, this word that is translated afraid or cowardly only shows up three times in the New Testament. It shows up in Matthew's account of this story. It shows up here in our text. And it shows up towards the end of Revelation. And we'll notice that in just a moment. Those are the only three times this word cowardly appears. And in all three times, it's accompanied with this idea of having no faith. So cowardly is attached to having no faith. And I think there's some significance there for us as we consider why it is that sometimes we are afraid to share our faith with others or why it is that we don't take the stand for Christ that we should. It's, it's, it's somewhat related to the fact that we're cowards, but it's also related to the fact that our faith in God is not very strong. We don't think that He can get us past whatever circumstance it is or we don't trust Him when it comes to potentially losing a friendship or a relationship or, or our families turning their backs on us. And so our, cowardly, our cowardliness is linked to not having faith. Why is, that, why is that so troubling? Well, if you could turn with me just briefly to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 is that third occurrence of this combination. Jesus has been describing the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven, and God has made ready as a bri- or, or uh, God has made us ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It talks about He who sits on the throne says, "Behold, I'm making all things new." He says, "I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of of, the, of life without cost, and he who overcomes will inherit these things." And I will be his God and he will be my son. That's great news for those who are going to experience this new Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, he turns the corner. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
Yeah, we, we want to be part of that first group that get to experience the, the new Jerusalem. And, he's, and then he lists the second group. These people will not. In fact, instead of the new Jerusalem, they, they inherit fire and brimstone, the second death. And the first two people in that first two categories of the group of those who are going to miss out on New Jerusalem are going to go to this place of fire and brimstone are the cowardly and unbelieving. That word unbelieving could be literally translated without faith. Without faith. So when Jesus says to the disciples, why are you cowardly and why don't you have any faith? It's more than just the fact that they're afraid of the storm. He's saying, do you not have confidence in me that leads you to follow me to death? Do you not have perseverance? Are you not willing to follow me regardless of the consequences? Or is this all it takes to stop you? Another way we could say it is, are you fit for the kingdom? Now that, again, that might seem very harsh to us because if we were in their circumstances, most likely we would be somewhat afraid. And yet Jesus is teaching them that they don't need to be afraid of the storm. They can actually be calm in the storm because of the one who is always with them. Our faith must be placed in Christ not in our circumstances. And so he asks, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And notice their reaction in verse 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the third time that Mega shows up in our text. First it was a very great storm. Then it was a very great peace. And now there's a very great fear. And he actually uses a compound on the word fear. So he's got two different words for fear joined together with this word mega to basically say a very great fear or a very intense fear. Very much afraid is one way we could say it literally. Or terrified with an intense fright. Their fear at the end was greater than their fear of the storm. And it wasn't necessarily a, a fear that, that drove them to worship God as much as to say, what kind of a God is this? Or what kind of a man is this that can do that? And truly, the, the only answer to that is, it's God. It has to be God. God's the only one who can speak with the authority of His Word and accomplish such an, an amazing change and transformation. Not just in the water and the storm, but in any life. It is God who, by the power of His Word, created all things and holds all things together. And so they marvel, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Their fear at the end was greater than their fear at the beginning. And the question before the disciples and, and Mark's readers is this, will their fear lead them to also put their trust in Christ? Jesus had already told them that you're kind of on the fence here. You're teetering towards unbelief. And so the question before the disciples, the question before Mark's original audience, the question before us tonight is, will our fear of God, will our recognition of His power and His character cause us to put our trust in God? 
Well, quickly, what do we learn from the disciples? We, we see the disciples' reaction. We see Christ's, Christ's reaction. What do we learn about the disciples? Well, we learn that they're cowards, right? We learn that they, they lack faith. If we examine the rest of the book of Mark, we find out that after the resurrection of Jesus, their, their situation changes. They go from being cowards. Remember, after Jesus is killed, they all scatter. Peter denies Jesus three times. And we see this, this coward, cowardness coming back into, into the spotlight. They're afraid even, Peter's afraid even of a little girl. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection and appearance to them, now they have the boldness to go preach, whether it costs them dismemberment, getting their heads chopped off, getting thrown in jail, being martyred. Now, what causes that kind of a change? It's the faith in God that, that comes as a result of knowing His character and His power. And once the disciples realized that, they ceased to be cowards. They became men of faith. So we learned that at this point, they're cowards and they lack faith. And that changes after the resurrection. And there's hope for us if we find ourselves being cowardly, if we find ourselves being without faith, that God is not necessarily done with us just because of an episode here or there, just as He wasn't finished with the disciples, both here and after the cross. We also learn about the disciples that they haven't completely understood who Jesus is or how much authority He wields. And that was something that they're going to have to learn throughout the rest of His ministry and then again after the resurrection. A lot of that changes. And, and we who live on the other side of the resurrection as we do, have a wonderful opportunity to understand fully the authority and power that Christ wields and, the, and to recognize that He is truly God. We have a benefit that they didn't have. We have the completed Scripture. And so we have the opportunity to understand exactly who Jesus is and how much authority He wields. And so what do we learn about Jesus from this account? Well, first of all, we learn that He's calm in the storm. He's so calm, He's sleeping. This is amazing to me. I, I'm a pretty sound sleeper, but I, I venture to say if, if any of us was in this storm, we would be awake already. And Jesus is calm in the storm. And even after they wake Him up, He's still not flustered. He still, still has the composure to ask them, what, what's going on? why are you afraid? What's going on? So why is Jesus calm in the storm when everybody else is panicked? I'd like to suggest, that first of all, it's because he had a strong faith in the Father's sovereignty. This was Jesus' plan. He tells them, let's go over to the other side, probably knowing full well this storm was coming. He could have said, hey guys, there's a storm coming. Why don't we just wait it out a little bit and then we'll head over. But he has full confidence in the sovereignty of God to say, God wants us to go over there. There's going to be a storm. It's all okay. He could rest. He could sleep in the midst of a fearsome storm. First of all, because he had a strong faith in the Father's sovereignty. And secondly, because he had a full understanding of the Father's plan. Christ had not yet died on the cross. He had not accomplished the mission that the Father had sent to him. And that gives Jesus much confidence and much hope that nothing is going to happen to him that's going to thwart God's plan. God is sovereign. His plan is wise. And he's going to accomplish his purpose. 
This is the kind of confidence that Paul has where he says, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It, it doesn't matter. Whatever happens to me is going to accomplish God's purpose. If that means I'm going to die, that's God's purpose. If I'm going to live, that's for God's purpose. And if we understand the Father's sovereignty and we understand that His plan will never be thwarted, we can be calm in any storm of life. We can take the cue from Christ how to be calm in the storm. second thing we learn about Jesus is that He stops the wind and the waves. And that might seem kind of obvious. But what I'd like to highlight is the fact that there are other ways He could have delivered his disciples. You know, he, could have, he could have streamlined a path that would get them and their boat straight across the lake. There were times you know, when Jesus would, would, would get into the boat and the, the boat was immediately at shore, almost like they teleported over there. He could have done that. He could have teleported them anywhere. He could have removed them from the situation or he could have you know, miraculously created a, some kind of a submarine or whatever and taken them down into the water. There were a lot of ways that he could have solved this problem that would have given deliverance to himself and the disciples and yet instead he, stall, he, he, he calms the storm. I believe he did this for a couple of reasons. First of all, to demonstrate his authority over nature. He proved that he is God by doing what only God could do. And clearly the disciples needed that kind of a lesson right now. They didn't understand who he was. And so to, to instruct them and to increase their faith and to show them part of his character and part of who he was, he demonstrates his authority over nature to prove he is God by doing what only God can do. Secondly, I think part of it is because of these other boats that Mark mentions. And Mark says they get, in, you know, they get in the boat with Jesus and they go across and he says there's other boats with us. There are other boats there. And you think, well, okay, Mark's the only one that mentions it. Why is Mark bringing it up? I think to highlight this aspect of, of Christ's character. Had Jesus delivered only his boat from the storm and just left the storm raging, those other boats would be lost. And yet Jesus shows his compassion and his care for these in delivering them all by calming the storm, not just the one he was on with his disciples. So he cared not only for those closest to him, but all those who were in the storm. And this teaches us a little bit about common grace. That, that God sends sunshine on the evil and on the good, right? He, he lets the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so Jesus is demonstrating his care for those, not just that were in his, his crew, not just him and his disciples, but also these other boats that were traveling along with them. And so he calms the storm, first of all, to demonstrate his authority over nature, but also because of the other boats that were there. They needed delivered from the storm as well. And God is God who cares for all of his creation. The third thing we, we learn about Jesus is that he rebukes the disciples. Now, I mentioned earlier, he doesn't rebuke them for their initial question. But he does rebuke them after the storm is calmed. And he asks them, why are you so cowardly? Why, why don't you have any faith? I think it's important to notice that it's not because they had rebuked him. He's not trying to get an argument and, hey, you rebuked me, so I've got to put you in your place type of a thing. He was patient with them when they rebuked him. 
and, and he's not looking to start an argument. He doesn't tell them all of the ways that they can know that he cares for them. So it's, it, he doesn't rebuke them because they had rebuked him. Uh, but it's because they aren't putting the pieces together. They're not connecting all of the dots. If you notice back in, in Mark chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, Jesus says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Jesus is trying to been, has been trying to teach them throughout this whole chapter to be, be careful what they listen to. And this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, if you can understand this, you will be held accountable for this. He starts off by telling them the parable of the soils. And, and you've got these four different soils. There's the hard ground where the seed falls on it, doesn't ever penetrate the ground. The birds come and take it away. You've got the, the rocky soil where, where you see a little bit of growth really quick, but there's no way for it to have deep root, and so eventually it just fades. You've got the thorny ground, or the uh, yeah, the thorny ground that chokes out the life of the plant, and then finally you have the good soil that does eventually bear fruit. And Jesus says in each of those situations, all four of those soils, he says they heard the word, and then this was the response. So he, it's not that the 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 path ground, the hard ground, never heard the word. It's not that the thorny ground never heard the word. They all heard the word. But there was only one soil that actually accomplished anything. They heard the word and they accepted it with joy and they, they responded to it. And Jesus tells his disciples, so be careful to listen. Not, don't, don't just let it bounce off of you. Don't let it just kind of sit on the surface there. Don't let it you know, nestle in among the thorns, but really get it and internalize it and let that truth control you. Let it bear fruit in your life. And the disciples were not doing that. And so Jesus shakes them up. Jesus reveals to them that, that they are not that final soil at this time. They're not putting the pieces together. I think perhaps lastly, and this, this would uh, be good for us as well, is that he's giving them a warning. Just as we mentioned in Revelation that those who are cowardly, those that don't have faith, will not be a part of that new Jerusalem. They won't enter into the kingdom. They will be instead sentenced to the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Perhaps he wanted to, to warn them. They were, on, they, were, they were at risk for falling off the edge. Perishing in a storm is not nearly as bad as ending up in a place of brimstone and fire. And he's more concerned for their eternal destination than how, how well they uh, make it through this storm. So we noted that the second fear that the disciples faced was greater than the first. It trumps that first one. It drives it away. They, they, they cease to worry about the storm. Granted, the storm was past. It's not even on their radar anymore. Now they're focused, they're fixed on Christ. Who is this man? And if we want to experience a great calm in the storms of our life, we need to learn this second fear. We need to be looking for the answer to the question, what kind of man is this? 
that even the wind and the sea obey him. What, is, what kind of power does he have? What kind of character does he have? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That is, the, the way we get knowledge, the way we get wisdom, the way we get understanding is we start off by fearing the Lord. And fearing the Lord is, is understanding His presence, His power, and His character at all times. If you think back to when you were a, a young child, there were things that you would do when your parents weren't around, but there were things you wouldn't do if they were around. You were aware of their presence. You were aware of their power. You were aware of their character. Hey, Dad's here. He, he doesn't want me to do this. This is wrong in his sight. He has the power to correct me if I do this. And it's in his character to do so. How much greater is God's power? How much more pure is his character? And he is always present with us. And so just as Jesus was calm in this storm, we can also be calm when we understand that God is always with us. He is all-powerful. And his character is perfect. The way we learn this fear is through this constant awareness of the presence, power, and character of God. And as we recognize that, we see he is a sovereign God. He has a perfect plan for us. And that's going to involve, most likely, some difficult circumstances, some storms in life. Those that live godly will suffer persecution even. So let us not try to steer around the storm of life. Let's remain calm in the storm, trusting in the sovereignty and the all-presence of God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you never slumber nor sleep. Your character is never changing. You loved us and you love us with an everlasting love. Father, we say with our mouth that we know that you're always with us. And yet, at times, we are just as fearful as the disciples were. I do ask, Lord, that you would teach us your presence, your power, your character, so that we have no reason to be cowardly in this life. We have no reason to fear the storm, for you are greater. We have no reason to fear the enemy. You are, you are stronger. You will defeat him. We have no reason to fear man. We should never fear those who can kill just our body, Lord. Rather, we should fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. And so, Father, I ask that you would continue to remind us of your power. Remind us of your presence. Remind us of your character. That we would not be cowardly. We would not lose faith. We would be bold in accomplishing what you've sent us to do. And we trust in Christ. Amen.